Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. Welcome to the Witch Money Podcast, your weekly hit of money news and personal finance hacks to help make you better off. I'm your host, Lucia Ariano, and here's what's coming up this week. When I was 49, I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, a particularly virulent form of breast cancer. It was one of those big life changes. I went at least six months with only one telephone interview. Very often when people deal with devastating circumstances, their emotional forecast for the future is pretty bleak, but not accurate. And uh, human capacity to recover from trauma is, is really absolutely extraordinary. Today's episode is on building financial resilience to help you cope with difficult or traumatic life events. When we experience a shocking event such as a job loss or an illness, there's often a financial fallout as well. But people tend not to talk about this, which can stop them seeking help when they really need it. And of course, this feels especially relevant after the last year as the pandemic has turned lives upside down and exacerbated so many of life's financial challenges. For this episode, I'll be passing you into the hands of which money journalist Charlotte Gifford for her investigation into how to prepare and build your financial safety net, where we'll hear from two people who did seek help after their lives took an unexpected turn and who came away more financially resilient as a result. We are which. Jane had been working in local government for about three years when she got news that we all hope will never have to hear. Just before I was 50, I was 49, I was diagnosed with uh, breast cancer, a particularly virulent form of breast cancer. The doctors didn't think she'd survive, but Jane made a miraculous recovery. However, things were never quite the same after that. As a result of all of my treatment and surgery I had, which took a year, I went back to work a year later at 51, back into local government, but found that everything had changed. My beliefs had changed. You know, it was an apocalypse of the mind and the body. And I didn't have the body that I'd had previously, and I didn't have the capacity to work in the way that I had before. When we think about the effect a major life event has on a person, we often forget about the financial impact. According to research by cancer support charity Macmillan, almost one in three people with cancer experience a loss of income after their diagnosis. Jane considered herself to be lucky. While she no longer had the energy to work full-time, she was still able to work part-time and became self-employed. Went back into consultancy and exec coaching, getting my own clients. 
she was enjoying working under her own bat and bringing in a relatively steady income. But then COVID happened. All of my work overnight stopped completely. David Wesley, Associate Professor of Psychology at Middlesex University, is an expert in psychological resilience. He explains how, often after something traumatic happens, it can have a knock-on effect on a person's cognitive function, making it harder to take positive steps that will put them on the path to recovery. One of the impacts of stress or or a traumatic event is that it, it changes our capacity for thought. Very often when people deal with devastating circumstances, their emotional forecast for the future is pretty bleak, but not accurate. And uh, human capacity to recover from trauma is, is really absolutely extraordinary. By most people's standards, Jane is someone who's been through a lot. A divorce in her 30s, a cancer diagnosis in her 40s, and now a massive loss of income as a result of the pandemic. Every time she's faced these challenges, she's pulled through and stayed pretty on top of her finances. So how has she managed that? The answer is that she's had a support system in place for the past 20 years, ever since that divorce. I had to think about the way forward and um, becoming completely independent again. The first thing I did, upon a recommendation of, of another work colleague, I sought the advice of a financial advisor, who's actually still with me 24 years later. Jane's financial advisor helped her set up an emergency fund in case she lost her job, suggested she take out a stakeholder pension, a personal pension known for its flexibility and relatively low charges, and move some of her savings into bonds and other investments. These measures have helped see Jane through whenever she's experienced a life shock. One of the most significant of these measures was a critical illness policy, which proved a financial lifeline when she got cancer. He organised the whole thing. I mean, I was so, so ill and all I had to do was sign a piece of paper. And then a couple of weeks later, a bank transfer or a cheque came in the post for the amount of the full mortgage. And this advice has helped her out once again during the pandemic, because even though Jane's income has suffered, she's managed okay. For the last year, I haven't earned a penny. So again, financial advisor helped me out there because I've been able to draw down on that stakeholder pension as a drawdown income. So that in itself, again, 24 years on, has helped me out enormously in another big life event. The Office for National Statistics defines financial resilience as the ability to cope financially when faced with a sudden fall in income or a rise in expenditure. Robin Kite, director of Kite Chartered Financial Planners, describes what this means in practice. Someone that has financial resilience uh, will have between three and six months of earnings as emergency cash reserves, probably in an accessible but not taxable savings account, which could be a cash ISA or premium bonds. And then some form of uh, life assurance that might provide a replacement income so if they have children, they want to cover the cost of raising the children if they pass away. And that type of life assurance product is called family income benefit. And then in terms of protection against incapacity, having an income protection policy in place. But often there are employers that will offer 
grouping and protection as an employee benefit, so it's important that they check whether that's available through their employment before looking at organising the policy. But a lot of people, especially those who can't afford a financial advisor, won't be in this position. Someone that doesn't have financial resilience will not have any of that in place and their cash savings position might be very low, might just be £100 or something like that. And in the worst case, if they had to replace a white good like a washing machine, that might push them into debt. Over the course of 2020, the number of people in the UK with low financial resilience rose from 10.7 million to 14.2 million, according to the FCA's Financial Lives survey released earlier this year. One of those people was David, who lost his job at the start of the pandemic, but before the furlough scheme was introduced, and he hadn't been working there long enough to qualify for redundancy pay. He already had high borrowings, but because he was on a high salary, he'd always found this fairly manageable. In fact, I was able to pay more than the minimum payment on a lot of those so that I paid them off during the 0% interest-free period. However, the pandemic tipped his finances over the edge. I'd never been in this position before and it was, it was quite terrifying. I probably only had a couple of months' worth of funds available, so I knew I needed to act very quickly. Uh, I contacted all of my creditors. Because companies were inundated with people asking for payment holidays, as the pandemic dragged on, David found his creditors increasingly impersonal in their approach and he struggled to get help. It wouldn't be unusual to be on hold for maybe an hour and a half, two hours before even getting through to somebody. And many of them weren't treating you like the first person they were speaking to that day because, of course, it was just completely unprecedented for all of us. One lender refused to put him on a second payment holiday. Instead, they offered him breathing space. But this wasn't the scheme you may have heard of that the government offers, which gives people with problem debt legal protections from creditor action for up to 60 days. It was one where they would give you three months of not paying, but they would still continue to add interest and charges, and it would affect my credit rating. At the same time, David was continuing to look for work. On LinkedIn, you can see how many other people have applied for an advertised role. And David saw the number of average applicants go up from 70 to 400. He went six months with only one telephone interview. Things reached a breaking point for David about seven months into the pandemic, when over 300 unsuccessful job applications and relentless back and forth with creditors had seriously taken its toll on his mental health. To be honest, I wasn't coping. It was having such an effect that I was, this is no exaggeration, I was drinking more, I was overeating, I wasn't exercising. So it really started to feel that things were starting to unravel. That's when David contacted Citizens Advice. Citizens Advice can offer you advice on paying your debts and help you work out which bills to prioritise, as well as advising on the debt solutions that might be available to you. They couldn't have been more helpful. Nothing was too much trouble And I felt like I was being treated as an individual. The thing I found most incredible was that they were talking to me about support that was available, financial and emotional support, that I wasn't aware of. Citizens Advice recommended that David contact a debt advice charity. That was a pivotal moment for me. We spoke to Andy from Step Change, the charity David got in touch with. 
The way that Step Change works is that whether you approach our service through our website, through our online debt advice tool, or whether you speak to us on the phone, we will take you through an assessment of your finances. So we'll look at your income, your spending, uh, and anything you have in terms of debts and assets as well, and then make a judgment call based on that information. Often Step Change find that by the time people speak to them, they're emotionally overwhelmed. My mental health was so severely affected that I was struggling with forms. And some of these forms were absolutely enormous. One form I had to fill in was 40 pages and the support booklet of how to fill it in was 19 pages. And even though I held a really senior role, I didn't feel capable of completing it. Fortunately, Citizens Advice and Step Change are well aware of this and they take a lot of consideration for your mental health as well as your financial commitments when you're dealing with them. So things like our online service are really helpful for that because people can take it at their own pace. If they need to go away and find out more information, come back later and, and finish, that's fine. So if you want to start off speaking to somebody and then finish the rest of it online, that's absolutely fine. So really, the focus there is to put measures in place that allow people to complete debt advice in their own way, in the way that they feel most comfortable with. There was a template letter that you could then um, just complete your personal details on to send to your creditors. But at every stage, you could contact them for any questions or advice. David was one of the first people to get Step Change's COVID payment plan, which launched in January. As part of this, he pays a single monthly payment to Step Change, which is based on his disposable monthly income. Step Change then pay each creditor on his behalf. It's taken a, a, a huge weight off my mind. But David's not out of the woods yet. Even after he'd sought help, creditors continue to send him default notices and letters about his debt. It's not unusual for me on a weekly basis to get letters from one of my creditors, and this is one of the big banks, with sentences, all in capital letters, underlined, with the word demand, references to debt collection agencies and bailiffs. One of the creditors, again a big bank, weren't just doing letters in the post, they were doing emails, texts, voicemails, and it was just harassment really. I think that would take a huge toll on anyone to receive something so threatening, as you say, in just such a relentless way. Exactly, especially when you've been really fastidious about you know, taking action. I dread to think what might happen to somebody who had buried their head in the sand. Although they vary depending on who the creditor is, there are rules about how creditors are supposed to treat people in debt. But as Andy from Step Change explains, creditors don't always follow these rules. We do expect that creditors will be understanding of your situation, uh, will not pressure you into paying more than you can afford, and will be prepared to accept repayments over a reasonable length of time. Quite often, where we do see harm for consumers is where their creditors have not been understanding of their circumstances and have tried to push them to pay more than is affordable. If you're in the same position as David and receiving letters about your debt on a regular basis, then consider getting advice because this could be considered excessive contact. If you're receiving letters on a daily or weekly basis about the same debt, then that could well be considered excessive contact and that could be something that could be the subject of a complaint. I think it's obvious that Jane and David are really resilient people but 
As Associate Professor David Wesley from Middlesex University says, there's a lot of misunderstandings around what actually makes a person resilient. The myth that persists is that people who are resilient and strong are able to cope on their own without having to draw in or ask for support from others. The way that an individual responds is part of the recipe for resilience, but social circumstances, uh, social and cultural support are also important. As government support measures start to unwind, Andy of Step Change estimates that the number of people needing advice with debt will shoot up, particularly going into next year. He's concerned a lot of these people might wait longer than they should before seeking advice. We did some research a couple of years ago, which shows that on average, people are in financial difficulty for up to 12 months before they actually start to seek debt advice. If you are in need of help, be it financial guidance or mental health support, remember you're not weak for reaching out. In fact, precisely the opposite, as we've seen from David and Jane. People will really get everything they need from from citizens' advice and step change. Even though there's been these kind of, I guess, bumps in the road, if you like, um, what has stayed with me is, is having those conversations much earlier on and that provision in place and also knowing that it's important to cut my cloth accordingly. That's been a life lesson for me. Thanks so much for sharing your investigation, Charlotte. It's been really interesting and inspiring hearing from Jane and David. Now, before we go a bit deeper into how you can build your financial resilience, I first just wanted to go back to a point in your piece where David describes what he calls the harassment he received from banks, constantly demanding repayment and the way they were written in capitals and red letters. And David says this continued while he was on the Step Change COVID repayment plan and the charity was organising his repayments, which, by the way, sounds like such a helpful initiative. And I'm really pleased we've covered that. Now, Andy from Step Change mentions that these kinds of letters sent excessively could be the subject of a complaint. I know you said, Charlotte, that the rules vary for this across providers, but how can you judge what constitutes excessive here? Or in other words, too much pressure from your bank? It is a difficult one, isn't it? Because creditors are allowed to take reasonable steps to get payments off of you. Um, so they can call you, they can write to you. And this can really easily start to feel like harassment, as it did for David. But what actually constitutes harassment, it does vary, as we touched upon. So some signs that it's maybe becoming excessive uh, is if you're getting contacted several times a day or if you're being contacted at unreasonable hours. Um, Creditors also aren't supposed to put pressure on you to pay in larger instalments that you can't afford. And they're also not supposed to do anything that could potentially embarrass you in public. So, for example, if they're they're calling on your home and they're contacting neighbours to get a hold of you, that's something that could cause you uh, embarrassment and could be considered harassment. So in the event that that is happening, you may want to consider putting in a complaint. Um, Firstly, you should kind of gather evidence that this is happening. So any documentation you have, um, any evidence of when they called upon you and how regularly that contact happened, After that, the first person you should complain to is the creditor themselves. They have about three business days to respond to you and also report your complaint to the FCA. 
but you may also want to consider complaining to a professional body, for example, the financial ombudsman service, if it is a bank that is uh, harassing you. And Charlotte, can we have some more practical advice um, around making provisions and preparing yourself for these life shock moments and any financial losses? We've heard that it really helped Jane when she became ill and lost her job to have her financial advisor in place, who she'd been working with for a number of years. So for anyone listening who doesn't have one, can you explain how this ongoing relationship with a financial advisor works and what you'd need to have one? So the cost itself and whether you'd need to have a certain amount of funds or income. As you say, yeah, Jane's story really demonstrates, doesn't it, the value of having an ongoing relationship with a financial advisor. So they'll they'll sit down with you, they'll create a financial plan for you based on your long term goals, and then they'll revisit that continually with you over the years. So it's it's really easy to imagine how that would be such a benefit after after a life shock such as the one she experienced. But it is really quite expensive. So firstly, there's there's often a high cost barrier to entry. So I surveyed a handful of financial advisors earlier this year. I spoke to about 10 and a number of them said they just wouldn't accept someone who had 20 grand uh, in in savings to play with. That was kind of considered too small an amount. So you can see there to begin with that this is something that you, you need to have a certain amount put away before you can consider it. And even then, um, the FCA estimates that advisors charge on average 2.4% of the amount invested for initial advice and an ongoing fee of 0.8% a year for ongoing advice. So if you had 100 grand with them over five years, that would cost you almost seven grand in fees. So you can see how that really starts to stack up. So it's something you should consider if you can afford it. But If you can't, there are other options. And the main option really is financial guidance as opposed to financial advice. So financial guidance is free and it it won't take you down a kind of tailored path in the same way, but it will give you an overview of your options. So you could speak to Citizens Advice Bureau, the Money Advice Service. Um, If you're a member of WITCH, you can speak to the WITCH Money Helpline and they will give you personal finance guidance. Okay, yes. So as you say, Charlotte, a financial advisor can be incredible, helpful, though potentially expensive and not for everyone. And in this instance, if you want to build up your financial safety net and you're putting in the work yourself, what are some of the things you'd recommend considering, whether that be kind of life insurance policy or savings? Could you give us, say, your top three areas that our listeners could use as a starting point to look after their financial well-being and resilience? So this year has really shown us that emergencies do happen. And I think everyone has probably come away from this year um, really aware of the importance of having emergency funds in place. So as you heard in this episode, it's really important to have at least three months in essential outgoings stashed away in an accessible savings account so that you have short term protection in the event of an income shock. Now, what if that sounds unrealistic right now? What if you don't have that saved away? Um, I think my second point would be that you really need to have a comprehensive budget for your finances. So just sit down and calculate your monthly outgoings and earnings. If you're not sure how much of that you should save away, um, investment firm Nutmeg suggests a budgeting ratio of about 50-20-30. So 50% on bills, 20% on savings and 30% on lifestyle choices. Um, So that's just a potential guide for you there. And after that, think about ways you can cut costs. So ways you can cut energy costs, for example, consider taking out a 0% balance transfer credit card to help you pay off existing credit card debt and freeze the interest for a set period. 
And then thirdly, I think, you know, if you want long term protection, as you say, an insurance policy is something you should consider, particularly if you have a family that relies on your income. So Jane had a critical illness cover policy, which pays out a lump sum in the event that you become seriously ill. But you could also consider income protection insurance, which pays out a regular income if you can't work because of sickness or disability. And that continues to pay out until you return to work or retire um, and usually pays out about 50 percent to 70 percent of your earnings. Um, So if you have dependents and if you think you need that long term protection, it, it might be something worth considering. And finally then, Charlotte, for anyone who's been affected by anything we've talked about today, we've already um, heard about the great work Citizens Advice and Step Change are doing. In addition to these, where could you turn for help and advice? So there's so many organisations out there that can help you, I think is the main takeaway from this. As I've said before, Citizens Advice and Money Advice Service are fantastic if you need free money guidance. But if you do need mental health advice, Um, You could contact MIND or BACP, uh, a professional association for UK counsellors that has a directory of private therapists. And for emotional support, you could also contact the Samaritans who have a 24-hour helpline. Thanks again to Charlotte and thank you for listening to today's show. As always, if you've got a comment or question on anything we've mentioned today, please let us know in the comments wherever you're listening to the podcast or on social media at Witch Money. And you know the drill. For more money news and advice, visit witch.co.uk forward slash money. This episode of the Witch Money podcast was recorded by Kim Carver, edited by Eric Breer and produced by Rob Lilly, with additional support from Ian Aikman. Mm-hmm.